Welcome back to Recurrent Events, episode nine. Today we're gonna to be talking about charter schools, specifically charter schools in California and recent legislation that's been passed or rather is being um, suggested or proposed in the assembly uh, for particular pieces and um, uh, for pieces of anti-charter school uh, legislation that seems to be in response to the Oakland and LA uh, Unified Teachers Union strikes and um, what it seeks to do, what information it's based on and um, uh, well, we're just going to try and spread some truth about what charter schools actually do, what these um, pieces of legislation intend to do, and what is the etiology or what are the causes or what are the thoughts behind them. And uh, as usual, I am paired with my esteemed colleague, Mr. Russ Shanson. Thank you for joining me, Wes. Yeah, my pleasure. It's, I mean, a big uh, story that's been going on for quite a while here and I guess has developed kind of in interesting ways there in the past week, I guess. I don't know, when did you sort of hear about this new proposal and how was that um, received at your school? Well, so we, uh, we had a meeting where we, we had a giant PowerPoint that showed us four of these pieces of legislation and it looks like they were first proposed back in February, but it's taken some time for us to become aware of what's going on. Perhaps the administration saw first saw it first, but it's looking darker and darker. Um, in fact, the idea, seemed, I, I think probably we had this information shared with us as educators because it's looking more and more likely that these uh, bills are going to pass. And part, part of the problem with them and their assembly bill 1505, 1506, 1507, and 1508, so you can tell that, um, <laughs> that this is on some people's minds given the, you know, the, or, the uh, ordinal or linear, linear nature of these bills, uh, the, the idea seems to be that something needs to be done and a scapegoat needs to be found, and the charter schools seem to be that scapegoat. We seem to be the Harry Potter rather than the Voldemort that the, the public schools, or at least the union professionals, wish to blame for their um, recent lack of success. And so, um, well, I guess my biggest problem with this has been that if we were doing a poor job or the claims that I had heard against charter schools, like we cherry pick our students that our demographics don't reflect our areas, that we divert funds that are necessary that would be helpful to other schools. Um, if any of those claims were true, potentially we could have a philosophical debate. But the fact of the matter is, and I think we both have a few sources in front of us that have some objective data the fact of the matter is none of this none of this is reflected in the data, even data that is taken by the state itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see the, you sent a big uh, document on some of the, the statistics and then uh, an article, it looks like, from the EdSource webpage. Um, were these also shared? at that meeting and were they sort of like walking you through these and I guess I'm asking if you could walk me through some of this? I can, that we weren't, we didn't go through this particularly in the meeting. We had some of this stuff sort of slightly mentioned, but I've done this investigating myself just because part of what we were asked to do in the meeting was to just sort of, you know, let people know what it is that we do at a charter school and being myself an independent researcher and, you know, having this platform with you, I thought that I would do some research on my own and, you know, I'm not simply a partisan thinker. I'm not simply conservative or liberal. I'm not simply party to a charter school because I only believe in charter schools. I believe in education. You know, I'm an educator. And the reason that I'm part of a charter school specifically in California is 
part of what they are doing and part of what we are doing is good work. And, you know, just from a justice and fairness perspective, I believe if people are helping other people that they should continue to do so and not share the fate of St. Stephen and be stoned for their good works, which seems to be what's happening here. So, well, right, let's, uh, let's start with some of these assembly bills. So starting with 1506. So 1506, if I'm reading from this EdSource article, it says, uh, proposed by McCarty, would remove the current liberal allowance for the growth of charter schools. Instead, the number of charter schools now operating currently, uh, 1,323 would become the new cap and new schools would open as other charter schools close, McCarty said in an interview. So part of what's happening here is part of what I believe was happening in West Virginia in our last, or what was proposed in West Virginia in our last conversation, which is um, rather than allowing to charter, charter schools to continue to grow and take more of the market share of students, they'll be capped which is um, on the face of it, not the biggest deal, but does indicate uh, a negative trend or the beginning of a trend uh, towards limiting and eliminating charter schools, uh, particularly because in California, which is a very liberal state, we, and we traditionally have liberal governors. We had Jerry Brown over the last eight years who vetoed three pieces of legislation that were anti-charter. He was very pro-charter, but now we have uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, and he's, he's very much, um, uh, he is of the same mind that the Oakland and LA teachers unions are. He's very much like a Justin Trudeau. He likes to do that, which seems to go with the popular crowd, or um, he, he seems to want to make his party happy, uh, regardless of what the facts of the situation are, at least uh, based, on his, um, based on his actions so far. And so basically what this would do, um, and uh, we do have the data in front of us, some, the number of charter schools over the last 20 years has something like doubled in California. And now, um, and something interesting to note is that we only have something like 10% of the students. So the idea that we're taking all the funds away from public schools and diverting necessary resources from them is ridiculous. And as we said on the last um, podcast, as well as um, uh, in one of the articles that we linked in the last podcast, it's not true that A, public school teachers have uh, been paid less over the last 10 years. They've, re they've been paid more and more and more. Also, they've received more resource personnel. Also, they consistently receive more funding than we do at charter schools. Their teachers get paid more and have actual tracks um, that they can go down in order to produce more money based on professional growth plans, uh, which means that they have larger, larger pensions at the end of their careers if they spend 30 years teaching and are over 55 when they retire, because if you make more money and you get 75% of your, um, your highest possible salary and you make more money during your career, you're going to have a larger pension. Um, and uh, I would also just add to that that uh, one of the other sources that we have here, um, which is actually not a charter school piece at all, it's from the National Center for Education Statistics, suggests that, um, uh, well, I guess I'll just say this is a this is, a, this is a second claim that's made against charter schools, that they are Caucasian heavy. And it looks like in 2001, 44% of students, at least in California, were Caucasian, so there were more early adopters. But a big striking um, feature of this, in this National Center for Educational Statistics uh, page that we have here is that over the last 15 years, the market share of people who, uh, or of Californians who choose charter schools uh, Hispanics have gone from 19% to 32%, which echoes the claim that we made based on the data from California and New York from the last podcast that actually it is um, minorities and people who are traditionally underserved who are now choosing charter schools and benefiting. 
from charter schools. So it is neither true that, uh, well, there are three claims that are not true, that we are diverting necessary resources and that there's a direct connection between um, increased money pumped into a school and pumped into the teachers and uh, student success. Charter schools, and especially my charter school, uh, do better um, do better with less money and uh, particularly with traditionally underserved students. They do better on state tests at charter schools rather than how they do at normal public schools. Uh, we do not cherry pick our students. We have something like a 1,700 person wait list and a lottery. A lottery is about as objective as it can get. If you read the Iliad, book uh, book nine, the or rather book eight, the, the Achaeans who want to fight against, it might be book seven, sorry. The, the Achaeans that want to fight against um, Hector, they draw lots. Uh, chance is the fairest thing that exists. Um, and then the third claim that um, uh, charter schools only serve Caucasians is uh, has not only not always been true, but is less and less true uh, the longer that they are open. So it's almost as if what the unions are demanding, which the uh, which the legislature is now honoring, is legislation that goes against the choices of those who are traditionally underserved in in California, which seems to be a very anti-democrat, anti-liberal, and anti-democratic uh, perspective. It, it, it's almost like charter schools really are just a pinata that are getting swung at in order to blame something that is not the true problem. You have cancer uh, of the lungs, and you want to blame some burgers rather than the pack a day of cigarettes that you smoke. Uh, that's a colorful image. I I think it's a fair one. I mean, based on what you're citing there, um, I guess it's it sounds kind of like the um, the the conflict over this is sort of a conflict over what's the best um, way to deal with a very bad diagnosis, right? Like everyone sort of agrees. I think I think that you know there is something wrong with public education, and so there's a few different sort of uh, modes of treatment that we, we could bring out, you know, suggested by different uh, doctors. And so uh, I, I think that the patient in this case, right, the, um, the teachers unions, um, teachers who work at charter schools and the students themselves, right, these are all sort of the patient on the table. Um, and it's a matter of sort of finding out how to keep them alive, you know, keep them learning. That's what we're kind of talking about in the, in the image and how to keep that happening with um, sort of within the larger, you know, body of the state or the, the uh, community. And so I, I agree, like there's, there seems to be some fairly drastic actions being taken here, like the, the capping of the schools, right? If they can't grow any further, that seems to suggests that there's a kind of um, antagonism built into the process, right? Where it's, it's eternally gonna pit charter schools against public schools because in order for a charter school to um, come into the state, another one has to fail. It doesn't matter under this model how many public schools are doing poorly, um, no new charters will be allowed unless another change to the law takes place, right? So it, it just seems like it's um, maybe shifting the focus from the problems with education to this kind of wrangle with what to do about those problems, right? And I, I guess one thing about this that 
really confuses me, I think, because given that, that data about race and ethnicity you just cited, um, I would be curious to understand better why the NAACP is standing with the uh, school unions um, and endorsing these uh, this slate of proposed bills. Um, that strikes me as very important, um, given that the organization sort of represents uh, the concern with race in the state. Um, I would want to know sort of what their side of the story is about why, given that data, they are taking the stand that they are. I don't know if that's something you've been able to research yet or, or if that was discussed at all at the meeting or with your colleagues since. Well, that's something I'd be very interested in too, because just looking now at this data from 2011 to 2012, from the National Association of Public Charter Schools. So just a couple of facts, charter schools are public, first and foremost. They use public funding. We receive less money than traditional public schools for our facilities, and we have less money to pay our teachers. So uh, one thing that's actually expre expressly been said to us in a meeting, uh, when comparing side-by-side -side district teachers, which is what we call traditional public teachers who do receive tenure after two years, we never receive tenure, is that we will never be able to compete with their salary schedule. So they get paid more money and we are public school teachers. And so a next claim uh, that's often made is, well, you cherry pick your students and have smaller classrooms. And so, you know, you don't deserve as much money. And actually you are part of the reason that the public schools are doing so poorly because you both sap the talent of the teacher pool and then just pick the best students, which sounds good, right? Of course, if that were true, then that would be a very fairly damning thing to say. But the fact of the matter is that even with um, NCLB, No Child Left Behind, now in California, we're actually required all teachers to be highly qualified, which means credentialed. So a difference between California and Arizona where you're a charter school is, did you need a credential or any experience before you became a teacher, Wes? Uh, no, that, that was, I mean, not a teaching degree or anything. There had to be mastery demonstrated in the content area, which right, I think is right. a good way to go about it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But e even agreeing with that, that is not allowed in California. So when I was hired on, I actually had no credential. I had demonstrated mastery in the subject by, of course, being able to develop a great books program based on a master's degree that I had. But something that my, my executive director said at the time was that you could be Albert Einstein and not be able to teach physics in, uh, in California, high school physics without a teaching degree, which, you know, is, again, just a, a falling over to the unions. That said, I would not have been hired at a traditional uh, public school because I was not highly qualified at that time. I was enrolled in a credential program, which cost me $20,000 and endless amounts of time while also developing a curriculum in my first years of teaching. It was hellish. And that's what's required of a charter school teacher. So not only was I working harder than a traditional uh, public school teacher because I had more additional requirements levied on me without having my mastery of my subject matter in any way recognized except for a very, very small stipend per year under $1,000 for my master's degree, which will take me, you know, it'll take me something like 20 years of teaching to have, uh, to have my master's degree mean anything or to have been paid for. Um, but the fact is, 
the teachers that get a chance to teach at charter schools are not more highly qualified in the traditional sense. They're often teachers, especially in my program, the Great Books program, who are, have uh, temporary credentials, who are working on their credentials, and so they have to work twice as hard to even be in the classroom, maintain their position in the classroom, to make less money, and uh, so certainly it is not the case that only the best teachers as defined by experience and credential and professional development programs are in charter schools. Second, I wanna bring your attention to Appendix A in the race ethnicity percentages by charter public schools and traditional public schools from 2010, 2011 from publiccharters.org. If we look at California and San Diego Unified School District, which is very near uh, my specific school district, uh, you can see CPS and TPS, charter public schools right above uh, uh, traditional public schools. And if you look at the percentages, they're very, very close to each other. It is by no means the case that um, one race dominates in charter schools and that others are excluded. Besides the fact that you have to literally, because of legislation and law, have a public um, honest lottery. So you see 14.1% Caucasian, 8.8% Caucasian. Uh, charter schools have 14% white. Traditional public schools have uh, 9%, essentially. So there's a small disparity there. Uh, black, 15.7%. Uh, or let me make sure I'm actually looking at the San Diego ones. Okay, so I was looking at LA. Let me look at San Diego. It's even better. Uh, they're even closer. So white is 24.2 in charter schools and in traditional public schools, 23.8. So that's almost the same. Black, 16% charter schools uh, and 11% in traditional public schools. So there are actually more black students being served in charter schools. Hispanic, 48.3 in charter schools. 45.7 in, in um, traditional public schools. So actually, again, another minority that is being more served by percentage in charter schools, even though we only have 10% of students. And then Asian, 4.3 in charter schools and 8.4 in traditional schools. Other, 7.2 in charter schools, 10.9 in traditional public schools. So I, I really simply don't know where the criticism that A, we cherry pick our students, B, that we sap, district resources, because remember we were called that uh, uh, students received $9,000 per year uh, in 2008, and now it's up to, or 2006 was it, now it's up to $16,000 per year, um, and, and that we, um, or, or that we, we have skewed demographics. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how, while looking at this data, you can possibly hold those opinions. I, yeah, again, I, I would be interested to know more about the uh, the arguments put forth there um, by the NAACP and the the teachers unions. I guess they must have some press releases and things that they've put out. Um, I, I think it's also really interesting that um, this is sort of the kind, this is the kind of thing where you can sort of grab onto a particular anecdote or, or, or right. seize upon a particular, right, uh, a given, you know, a charter school somewhere has very different numbers or it has some kind of, you know, horror story that, that has made the rounds uh, about, you know, things that they've done there. I, I guess there's also um, charter schools which, you know, uh, may have been authorized under more lenient systems of uh, review, which maybe today would not have been authorized if they 
made their proposal now. So I, I think it's sort of a lot of different straws in the wind that, that are sort of coming together. Um, again, sort of that, that underlying festering brokenness of the, of the school system and its funding system, which we talked about before, right? That when you put those things together, then you, you have a, a situation where even schools which are, and school, school districts maybe, which are more equitable and are doing you know, their due diligence are gonna be kind of caught in this um, sort of uh, a reckoning, <laughs> which it sounds like has been a pretty long time coming, like given California's history being fairly lenient and, and having tons and tons of charter schools at this point, um, it sounds like it's kind of a, a correction so to speak, that, that's maybe overcorrecting. Um, I don't know if that would be one way to sort of understand what's going on. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I just, I, I just want to bring to light another criticism of charter schools, too, in agreement with that. And there's another claim that charter schools are often, just because you were talking about what's called the availability heuristic, right? More people believe that it's more dangerous to ride in a plane than in a car, even though it's 11 times, you're 11 times more likely to die in a car crash than on a plane because of the fact that it sticks in your mind more when you hear about a plane crashing. Like when those, uh, se you know, those 70 doctors died in Africa recently, um, uh, I think they might've been, uh, Doctors Without Borders, and it was very sad when they went down. I think it was a Libyan airline. I, I can't recall all the facts there. But again, that's the availability heuristic working there. Like you said, we we hear about one audacious example of charter schools doing poorly, and we, we assume that that's all charter schools. And so just another example of that is uh, a criticism made against charter schools is that, well, don't for-profit companies just generate these schools not caring about the consumer or the students, but just wanting to make money. Well, in, in, in California, as of 2018, it was estimated that we had 1,275 charter schools. This is from the Washington Post. Only 34 of them were from for-profit organizations. And as of 2018, Jerry Brown signed a bill into law, I believe it was Assembly Bill 406, that no longer allows charter schools to be run by for-profit organizations. And sometimes, and this is the most perfidious claim I've heard made, because there is the word corporation in, in the, um, the nonprofit um, in the nonprofit name for a California charter school, those are considered rhetorically, though not legally, of course, as corporations, quote unquote, running charter schools because they have a board. But it, it is the fact of the matter that an NPO, a nonprofit organization, always has a board as part of the fact that they are nonprofits. So I just want to add that as well, that it is under 1% of charter schools that have ever been run by, especially in California, by for-profit companies. And now there's actually legislation that has been passed by a pro-charter governor or, or, or was at least suggested and signed by the pro-charter governor or it was signed by the pro-charter governor um, that keeps for-profit uh, companies from running them. So not only are we not you know, selective in who we choose, not only are we not diverting resources, we're also not doing evil, we're not profiting off the young. Um, and, and in fact, as a teacher, I make less money, as I've mentioned before, than I would in a traditional district school where I would not have even been able to get a job when I first started my career.
no, I, so that's kind of, that's kind of why I'm a substitute teacher here in Washington. Like uh, they have much more stringent rules. I don't know exactly how stringent, but even, <laughs> I think even the charter schools, the few that do exist are like being sued, you know, in court, like constantly um, to try to basically put them out of business because the, uh, the unions and the, uh, you know, interests uh, here are, are so strongly on the side of traditional public schools, right? right? As opposed to the charter public. And so, you know, I, I work as a substitute teacher and, and enjoy that, but it also gives me a very, you know, grounds eye view to a lot of things that are really, really wrong with um, the public schools. And I guess you probably um, wouldn't have heard this, but uh, the local news here has been full lately of uh, a really interesting kind of unintended consequences story where a long, uh, a long court battle, like many years long, uh, resulted in a, in a significant pay boost for teachers. Um, but then uh, it became clear that the various districts, many of them, uh, the larger districts, would actually be bankrupted by this court decision uh, pretty right. quickly if they paid their teachers that much. So they've actually had to lay off a number of teachers going into next year. Again, it doesn't affect me because I'm only a sub um, and I get paid by the days that I work and not as a, you know, uh, pay schedule or anything, but but it does affect any new you know eager go getter sort of teachers because it's it's all of those with the lowest seniority that have been that have had their jobs cut and been laid off. Um, so it's it's an incredibly ironic situation has really made a lot of people pretty angry across the board. Uh, but you know it actually doesn't seem to have generated any particular interest in charter schools here still. <laughs> so so I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. Well, that, you know, that's incredible. And I think that just shows sort of, you know, just to tie this into a, a conversation we often have is this culture of resentment and entitlement that we're developing, where we, rather than focusing on financial and economic realities, like the, the fact that, you know, the pool of money that is paid to educators isn't just decided on by some evil Mr. Burns, but rather comes, you know, largely from the property taxes of the the, the um, area in which you live, the district in which um, your school is located. And you know, if that's a low income area, then you're gonna be a low income teacher. Those are the facts. And you know, I was recently listening to one of our seniors give a presentation today on the benefits and the entitlements given to firefighters. And you know, there are a lot of public employees, there are former military people who have pensions, there are former teachers that have pensions, there are former you know, cops and firefighters that have pensions. The, the way that we fund these public personnel is, is nobody is just getting everything or nothing. You know, these budgets are highly sophisticated and they're based on the changing amounts of taxes that are paid into the state either by gas or by income or by sales taxes. And, you know, all those little fees that you see come out of your paycheck as well as what you pay even to be on the roads. And so, it, you know, I think what, you know, part of what we need to do is be much more sophisticated about what we're looking at. You know, we need to look at some of these spreadsheets and some of this paper in order to understand what's really happened, happening rather than taking what I would consider as the easy route and yelling, leaving our job spaces, taking up pieces of paper and just, you know, and putting them on wood and, uh, you know, and, and yelling that we deserve more. It's like, well, you know, maybe we need to produce more. Um, but, 
just very quickly, I want to mention the other three assembly bills. Uh, I think I started with 1506. I didn't mention 1505, 1507, or 1508, but I think 1505 is particularly interesting. Do you mind if I share those quickly? Yeah, go for it. So uh, AB 1505, Assembly Bill 1505 by O'Donnell, uh, would give districts where a charter school would be located, I'm quoting here, the sole authority for approval or denial. The 1992 charter school law gave charter schools the right to appeal a denial to a county board of education. The 1998 amended law clarified the criteria for hearing appeals and created a second layer of appeal to the state board of education. Charter advocates say appeals are critical because some districts are philosophically and reflexively opposed to charter schools, which they view as unneeded competition. County boards and the state board bring objectivity to charter reviews, they say. But O'Donnell said that limiting reviews to the home district is consistent with the state shift to local control where governing boards best know how to manage their districts. The data on county appeals is not available. Data from state boards show that since 2011, the board has approved 32 new charter schools on appeal and denied nine. The most 12 were approved last year. So there's a, ten, there's a trend upwards of needing this appeal process. Um, but five of those were in response to a court decision related to non-classroom-based independent study charter high schools. All right, so what did you, what do you hear, what do you see there? The fact that this appeals process, which is being used more and more, is now being, uh, or the legislature is attempting to deny this to the um, two charter schools um, under the auspice of returning control to local authorities, uh, district authorities in California. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's kind of an opportunistic move, again, given the current um, si situation with this kind of active uh, local unions and engaged membership, a, a chance to kind of undo a, a level or maybe more than one level, it sounds like, of oversight, um, objective, you know, perhaps, um, or at least slightly more um, careful, right? Like uh, less reflexive was the language, right? Uh, right. Uh, authority. I, I don't know quite how to, uh, to deal with that last detail uh, about the um, independent study charter schools. That sounds like, again, a, a pretty unique situation and based again on a, a court decision. Um, which makes it, of course, more complicated. <laughs> but it does seem like, yeah, kind of interesting that the most were approved just last year, maybe kind of like trying to clear the deck uh, if they right. sensed that something like this was coming, possibly. Um, but it just, yeah, it just strikes me that, of course, a local district would have a vested interest in not approving new charters. And again, it sounds like that won't even be an issue until they, um, have some charter schools that uh, go under for whatever reason. So it's just a kind of um, uh, attrition, it sounds like, that they're, they're after here. Right, and I think if you hear the language of Assembly Bill 1507 and 1508, you'll see sort of the perfidious way in which these pieces of legislation will work together. So keep in mind that independent school thought that makes it so that you don't need to be close to the charter school and is an attempt at distance learning or, or the sort of education that I received in Georgia, the magnet school idea where people from different districts come together based on uh, you know, having high ITBS, uh, that was a standardized test scores and get to do you know, 
higher level work together. And so AB 1507 by Smith would rescind, I'm quoting again, an infrequently used exemption that allowed a charter school that could not find a facility in the district that approved it to locate in a building in another district in the same county. And let me just move immediately to 1508, which works with this one. Suggested by Bonta is a one paragraph, is one paragraph long at this point. It reads, it is the intent of the legislature to enact legislation that would permit chartering authorities to consider in determining whether to approve a new charter school petition, the financial, academic, and facilities impacts the new charter school would have on neighborhood public schools. Um, end quote. Uh, but continuing to quote from this particular source, unlike charter authorization in many states, approval is the default position. Charter petitions must detail 15 elements, including their education programs, measures of academic progress, and efforts to achieve racial and ethnic balance. We actually have to prove that as charter schools. As you've seen in the data, we do a good job of that. A district must grant a charter unless it finds that the, the petitioners presented an unsound education program or demonstrated they would be unlikely to implement it or failed to comprehensively describe, comprehensively describe the 15 elements. Um, districts, as of now, are not permitted to consider a charter school's financial impact on the district, although some boards do anyway. One reason there are appeals. Last year, in appearing before the state's board's hearing on a charter school appeal, the Eastside Union High School District Board openly cited the erosion of student tuition revenue in rejecting a new charter school that board members acknowledged had a sound program. And there's some more data here, but I don't want to just read during this podcast. Um, one thing that was brought up in our meeting is that something that our charter school offers that many charter schools now offer is the uh, is distance learning. The, the ability to take online classes with us if you do not live close, which is part of, you know, the school choice sort of initiative, even though you don't, which makes us even more inclusive, I think, if you look at it, which means if the schools in your area are not particularly good or safe in this case, you can sign up for an online, uh, you can take an online component through our school in order to receive a better, safer education, even though you're not physically closer. Obviously, it would be best to be able to go to a physical school for several reasons, having that community culture, having an actual physical teacher present, uh, being in you know, a place of learning. But it does strike me that again, this legislation is attempting to limit the choices of people that are making these choices, particularly people who are in underserved communities who might be looking for a way out. Yeah, uh, it sounds like I mean, the idea that there would be um, a school from one district having to find a building in another district, are you saying that that one, 1507, is the one that uh, would be curbing distance learning? Right, exactly, precisely, because if the student is not in the district, at least how I understand it now, and we can correct this in another podcast if this is wrong, if a student isn't within the district that the charter school is in, that they might in some way, that they would not be eligible to go to that charter school. <coughs> uh, though, though if I look at the language here, it does sort of look like, um, it, it looks like it, it might be more sophisticated than that. It might be the case that a charter school, if it cannot procure a building in the district that approves it, then it cannot open. 
um, I can look more into that to make sure that I'm not uh, disseminating false information or incorrect information. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the intention of that is to deal with distance learning situations. Uh, it doesn't sound like the writer of this article is interpreting it that way anyhow. Um, I, I do find 1508 pretty amusing though, <laughs> that it's, it's, a, it's an intent, it's a statement of intent, right? Um, and it does seem like that one would be pretty critical if, that, uh, if they're allowed in the future to consider the impact on their finances. Well, barring a, a very large increase in population, you know, then any new charter school is gonna negatively impact the uh, the existing schools because fewer kids are going to go to those schools right like unless right again uh all of the kids somehow you know come from outside the district and aren't going to other schools in the district anyway like it just sounds like that's basically a blanket statement of we will always have a reason to refuse any new charter school so right and um, if there's no appeals okay. process then that can be then that bill can be a can be appealed to um or can be invoked and denying the charter to any school. These schools have not been doing as well and have not received as much funding because there have been fewer students going to them because of the existence of charter schools in the past, therefore, or that, that currently exist, therefore no new charter schools can be created because if they're created, that will continue to lead to uh, more students leaving the district schools and receiving better educations. So we would prefer not to honor the choices often of underserved populations, minorities that are moving more and more towards charter schools <coughs> in order to selfishly uh, keep the doors of poorly performing public schools with um, you know, increasingly well-paid public uh, teachers uh, open and keeping their jobs safe. That's what it sounds like to me. I, I mean, and, and given the uh, recent strikes and, and so forth, I mean, people clearly are, are extremely passionate about their traditional public schools. Um, what I agree with you on is, is that maybe they don't fully understand what's at stake in like turning that energy to pit against charter schools rather than clamoring for improvement of all schools, right? I think, right. you know, people are very prone to having, you know, good intentions and a lot of, you know, enthusiasm about what they're passionate about, but then other people are very skillful at, at using that, that passion, maybe good in itself, and, and finding a common enemy to kind of pit it against as a way to sort of stoke it and keep it keep it inflamed um, when concessions have already been won, right? To just like keep their base activated. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it seems like such a shame that people who are responsible for educating and like maybe improving the level of thought among their students would be so sort of easily swayed and not be careful enough about what it is they're, they're saying they're for and against. Um, that, that seems like a real, shame and, and yet another kind of humongous irony to this whole thing. Um, so I feel for you there in, in CA, but you know, at least you do have charter schools for now. So I hope you can hang on to them. Right. Well, you know, and just to recap, what, what it looks like right now is that there's a claim that uh, charter schools, uh, we cherry pick the students we have. Um, just to mention, we have an objective lottery, which is random, that our demographics do not reflect those of traditional public schools, and that leads to us having inflated numbers based on the fact that we cherry pick 
only Caucasian students. It's neither true that we have more Caucasian students uh, uh, by percentage than, than the district schools, or at least we're within one percentage point in San Diego County. If you look at the data, I'll have that link um, in the description here. Um, and so we, we, we take whoever wants to come here and who wants to come and who gets into the lottery is increasingly over the last 15 years, or at least 2001 to 2015, Hispanic students from 19% up to 33%, which means that um, though, you know, of course I respect the district teachers because they do a very difficult job. They are teachers and like you're constantly counseling on this, on, on this podcast, you know, we are all working you know, we need to be working together because we're all on the same side, essentially, though it seems like my particular part of this side is being skip, scapegoated right now. But um, also that we do not, we are not run largely by uh, for-profit companies. There were 34 out of over 1,200 that were for-profit. And in 2018, an assembly bill passed and was signed by Governor Newsom that limited, that made it impossible for for-profit companies to continue to develop. Um, and also it is the case based on the data we shared in the last episode, episode eight, that um, more money has been given, more and more money over the last 10 years to uh, district students. So, you know, that money is not disappearing. Uh, they are receiving more money. Uh, charter schools are not taking it. And just the market share that we take is 10% of California, not 50%, not 60%. We're a very small, um, we're, we're a small fraction that largely serves a representative a swathe of the population and more and more of those who are traditionally underserved and just the idea that we only take the best teachers. Again, I'm a good example. I didn't even have a credential. I had a temporary credential and several of my colleagues have had emergency credentials um, in order to teach. I mean, maybe we have proved that we are good educators over time and I do now hold a California teaching credential, but it's not the case that, uh, you know, a highly paid, um, highly experienced teacher from the districts or that, many of those are switching to charter schools uh, from the districts. In fact, they, they make so much more money and have so many, and have tenure, and so they, don't, they don't have much reason to go charter after being a public school teacher because they would make less money, not have tenure, so they'd have less job security, and their pensions would be less when they retired. And so I think one thing I'm really trying to mention here is that we are clearly being scapegoated Often the reasons for scapegoating us are based on misinformation, so we're trying to put real information out. And I just wanna highlight the things that we're doing right and well, and highlight the smear campaign that's being used to push uh, these assembly bills through the California legislature in order to address um, a cause of the problem that is a mirage, that is not real. Um, and hopefully some people can hear this and you know they speak up, because we are serving the public at charter schools and we serve you know, a representative sample of the public and we are doing a good job and we are being blamed now for doing a good job, which if we were doing a bad job, if we were serving corporate interests, if we were clearly racist, if we were not getting improved test scores um, and, and improving the lives of those who are traditionally underserved, for sure, that would be a conversation worth having. But none of those none of those positions are actually true. So again, it feels like we're we're like an Old Testament prophet that we are being stoned like Saint Stephen for speaking the truth, for doing a good job, and that just doesn't sit right with me. And I don't think that'll sit right with anybody if they hear the facts like I have. Yeah. Well. Well. I I hope that yeah we hear from people and 
get their take on this whole thing and maybe continue this conversation um, as it as that story keeps on kind of, uh, I don't know if it's going towards any particular conclusion or just kind of metastasizing. I guess we'll see. Yeah, and again, thank you for continuing this conversation with me. Uh, we've had, you and I, I think, have always had a love for education and always tried to find our places within it. And for the longest time, I didn't identify as a charter school teacher, more as an independent scholar who happened to work at a charter school. But being now part of a demonized body that's being demonized unjustly has really fired me up and makes me, it just makes me want to use the sort of truth to try and clear away some of these lies that are being used to, you know, again, scapegoat or blackball a just and helpful and good part of the world that has been, you know, that has been coming up in the world that is that more people are choosing precisely because of its good effect. Yeah, I, I, I definitely hear the, the fervor growing, <laughs> the zeal for the charter thing. Uh, and I just would caution you, I guess, to remember, keep on, uh, working at it. Yeah, it seems like an important thing to do right now. And, you know, and when I get back to the classroom, I'll be all the better in there. You know, I'm not going to be spouting nonsense. I'm not going to be spouting political vitriol. I'm going to be teaching Virgil to my freshmen and Shakespeare to my sophomores and doing my best, which is what I try and do every day. Well, yeah, I definitely envy you getting to teach those books. That's pretty rad. Um, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. Yeah. Well, I commend you. Thank you. All right. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thank you for talking to me. And um, I'm looking forward to trying to get some people on here. Maybe we can get people from both sides. Maybe we can get some district, you know, maybe some union reps or union participants from Oakland and LA, maybe even, uh, you know, a democratic representative in the assembly uh, at some point. I know we're sort of small fries, but you know, we are, we too are, well, at least I am, at least specifically a part of the constituency of some of these assembly people. And, you know, as both educators, yeah, it would be good to talk to some public figures who ostensibly represent our interests. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, until then, have a good weekend. See you.